Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, how could the Prime Minister not know blackface was wrong because he is rich? A new poll suggests that society is losing trust in science and our scientists. Are they part of the elite? And Led Zeppelin is back in court today with Stairway to Heaven. Is it an original? or a copy. The judge will decide. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I accept the Prime Minister's apology. Um, I don't think the man's a racist. Uh, however, um, I don't buy his excuse. I don't buy his, his answer that uh, because he grew up in privilege... Uh, that he didn't know that this was wrong. There's lots of people who grew up in privilege and they're well aware of what the rest of society lives like. So I'm not sure if this is, uh, uh, you know, he grew up in privilege, if that's an excuse or just an admission, he's not very smart. He's not very knowledgeable of the life of everyday Canadians, whether you're rich or poor or, or what your ethnicity is. Uh, phones are open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. We'll take a couple quick calls before our guest here. Uh, Rob's on the line. Rob, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I disagree with you about his apology. I, I think that was one of the most disingenuous things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He, he just tried to fall back on, oh, I was a rich kid. I didn't know, da-da-da-da, white privilege, it, it, it just sounded like BS to me. I, 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 I just I, have I, a hard, I just have a hard time over and above that. I have a hard time him not knowing that it was wrong. Yes, exactly. And if you don't exactly. know that that's wrong, if you don't know that's, that that's wrong, then how can you conduct the meetings that you do in the prime minister's office on a daily basis? I don't know. I, I, that's where I, I, I was in, I was in high school from the mid to late seventies and things weren't quite yep. as, it's not as politically as they correct. were now. Yep. But, uh, and I went to a pretty big high school. There was almost 2,000 students there. And not one, I mean. I know, I remember the same thing. I said the same thing yesterday. I don't remember anybody in my high school in the 70s showing up as blackface. I don't remember that either. I know, I know, I know. I I hear you. It's ridiculous. I know. I hear you, Rob. All right, thanks for the call. I got to run on because I got to get some more here uh, before we go. Uh, Johnny, go ahead. What are your thoughts? Johnny, are you there? Yes, sir. So what are your thoughts on the Prime Minister's actions? Okay, Prime Minister's actions. I'll be 60 next year, and we were talking to all our buddies. And, you know, yeah, we all dressed up. You know what? Let's go Cowboys and Indians uh, for Halloween. You dressed up. You, and, I, yeah, I do know guys that does black face, black face and that and different things, Indian colors. And you know what? Back then, no, he didn't know because, you know what? We didn't get it. I didn't get it. We just went out for Halloween. The next day, it was all over, and he went on. Did he, is he apologizing for back then? Yeah, same as I would. I'd apologize now. Times have changed, and I get it. But back then, no, it wasn't. It's not. He ain't no. He's not prejudiced, man. And he, the reason he's saying, you know what? He's throwing it. He was privileged because I don't really think he has a real good answer. And the real one is the truth. I think he just doesn't. He, I didn't get it back then. Yeah, we understood now, but it wasn't pushed on us like that. Everybody dressed up. They sold the costumes in the stores. Two thousand and one, though. I mean, he's a teacher at a school. Yeah, I, I, I know, but this. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, two thousand and one. That's nine eleven. I think okay, we're I, well I, aware I, of, you know. I, I get that. Where's all the people in 2001 coming down on them? Or anybody that yeah. does stuff like that if it's that bad? And yeah. I bet if you look into the research, there was nobody came down on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like anybody else, buddy. That's all that is. I just think I, Wait a sec. Stop right there. That's where I will say stop right there, Johnny O, because I've never dressed up as blackface. And hey, I'm not, you have it. No, and, you and, 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 and wait a sec. I and, and, and I don't know anybody that has. And again, uh, as I said to you before, I was in high school in the 70s. I don't remember anybody doing that. And, you know, whether they thought differently of race and, and such and religion way back then, of course they did. But people still knew it was wrong. And that's the hard part I have here is if he's not smart enough to know this is wrong, is he smart enough for the chair? That's that's my point. Yeah, you know, yeah, you're right on that. I think his answer, the privilege part, yeah, a bunch of bull. He should have just said, you know what, like I just said what I said. I didn't really get it back then. I do. I definitely do now. Would never happen. And All right, I Johnny. Left, and I should left to left. Thank you very much, guys. All right, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Uh, let's bring in Tim Powers. Uh, get his take on all of this. Uh, feel free. The phone lines are open. Uh, open if you want to chat. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Nine zero five six four five three two two one star nine nine hundred on your cell. Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He's advised national parties and leaders and cabinet ministers and everyone. 
Uh, Tim, your thoughts uh, after uh, a weekend of digesting all of this, where is Canada's head? Well, we did a poll, our polling company, Abacus Research, on, on all of this. And what, what, let me see if I can recall the numbers precisely for you, Scott. Fifty-three percent of Canadians had uh, had heard, were fully engrossed in the story, had heard about it. There was another forty percent ish who had heard about it, uh, or thirty-five, sorry, that had heard about it and had some awareness, and then the rest hadn't heard about it. Of that 53% that were fully aware of it, um, you know, 40, 41%, I think it was, thought uh, it was wrong, but they accepted the prime minister's apology. Uh, another 40-odd uh, percent uh, were of the view, sorry, not that many, 26% uh, was going to influence their vote for sure. And another 40, it wasn't going to influence their vote at all. So that's a little over 100. I miscounted that. But you get the gist of it. It's a lot like the conversation you were having with the two callers there. Most people, it seems, uh, Scott, are willing to say, all right, we'll forgive you. This was really stupid. It was offensive. Uh, and, and move on from it. It was interesting of the people that we polled who said it was going to influence their voting. The vast majority of them, two-thirds, were conservative. So um, Justin Trudeau isn't fishing in that particular voting pool uh, anyway. But it's right now it's also uncertain to see if there's a bigger impact from all of this. Those are the initial reactions that have come back. Uh, You bring up a very valid point there, and we'll touch on that a bit later in the sense that I think this is one of those things that takes a while for people to process. And your first reaction is usually the racist angle. And then after that, it sort of it settles in. And again, to me, there's two issues here. There's uh, the images and what happened uh, and his apology for them. That's one issue. And I accept his apology. I don't believe the man's a racist. But, Nor do I. But um, the other issue is how did he not know that this was wrong? And I think that's a greater issue which will take longer to resonate with people because how do you buy into him on any of these other issues that he's, he's trying to sell when clearly he doesn't have a grasp of this? That and uh, also, who is the real Justin Trudeau? You've heard Jagmeet Singh exactly. say that a few times. Uh, you've heard Andrew Shearer now say that as well. I think the more damaging aspect of this for the liberals is twofold. One, it has thrown them off their campaign a little bit because they were doing reasonably well in the first week of the campaign pointing out conservative candidates who had, you know, said or done stupid, heinous, offensive things in different social media platforms or had friendships that the the liberals deemed somewhat questionable. Um, And he was on his moral high horse, somewhere where the prime minister always likes to ride. He can't do that now, so that's impacting their actual campaign. The second thing is, what does it do overall to the prime minister's brand and that brand um is one that was you know well cultivated around being progressive and hopeful um if he's flawed like the rest of us and doesn't always necessarily give you all the facts or tell the truth up front um that could be an issue for him in certain voting cohorts like one of the things we saw in our polling that was really interesting the uh, there's about 12% of Canadians who, so far since seeing this, are not sure where they're going to vote. It is impacting their thinking about where they're going to vote. Most of them are under the age of 45. 71% of that 12 are under the age of 45. So key voters, Trudeau needed, 63% of them last time voted for him. If they move off, there's an election change there. If they, they move away from Trudeau, perhaps go back to the NDP. Now, the bit of the outlying data on that was of that group, they're still predisposed to vote liberal, but this has really floored them. So it doesn't matter if, you know, 80% of us aren't affected by this or we've moved on. If there's a segment of 10 or 12%, as I've just said to you, in key voting demographics that really it's cutting at them, it's annoying them, they like the prime minister, but they're really questioning him, that can be enough to make a change. It's not clear if it will at this point, but it's something I know the liberals are concerned about. Uh, Is anything the prime minister is saying at this point resonating, or are people just sort of still standing there with their mouths hanging open? 
Well, I mean, look, talk about this announcement like uh, today, you know, you and I were joking about this last week. He's going to regulate cell phone or he's going to make cell phones cheaper, but he won't tell us how. Right. I mean, that's a great distraction. We would all like cheaper cell phone bills, uh, but uh, no plans around all of that. I I mean, he's still being dogged by this. And Um, and I think you're going to get a lot of people saying, well, why this now? Why now? This is just seeming like a Hail Mary. Yeah, exactly. And that's the way it's been conceived. At the, some of the feedback from people on the tour bus with them is there was no background or there was no plan. Usually these announcements have that. And today, you know, they had their big pharmacare announcement, and that's being, again, obscured by all of this as everybody tries to figure out what that means. I mean, all the national pollsters were all sort of showing the same thing at the moment, which is race is still tight, no big movement yet from this particular blackface um drama, saga, crises, however you want to describe it, from which lens you're looking at it. Uh, race is still tied. The one thing that is interesting is all of the leaders, Scott, and this tells you why Trudeau may still have an advantage, have are, are viewed more negatively than they are viewed positively. Yeah. So if there's no one breaking away and seeing, and this includes Jagmeet Singh, who I would argue had a good couple of days, yeah. if no one is breaking away in the positive lens and they're all sort of still in the same quagmire that benefits the prime minister i think uh this this just making the public more cynical absolutely um because it's and you hear this right it's just like well i'm that really angered me and i've upset that the prime minister did that but can i vote for the conservatives and because i'm not really sure about andrew Scheer, so it's there, there is no one shining light out there that seems to be capturing the public's attention. So they're frustrated. Uh, There's a frustration that nobody is really representing them. And again, I think that can benefit an incumbent because that may lead people to going, well, at least I know with Trudeau what I'm going to get, right? As opposed to Andrew Scheer, not yet proven. That may be some of the conversation. Because the one thing we did ask, which was really interesting, and this is the well, it's all interesting, of course, but this is this is the thing that uh, the liberals want to have happen. We asked you, would you prefer a conservative government or a liberal government? So a very simple question. Uh, the liberals ended up in that question uh, with 53% of Canadians saying, all right, if that was our choice, mm. we'd go with the, conserv- uh, the liberals and the conservatives were in the uh, mid-40s. That's the question the liberals want to keep framing. Uh, our guys flawed and all of that, but... Do you want the Still other Still better than the other guys, yeah. yeah. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago, and, and you said, you know, uh, 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 we're pretty much heading towards a uh, at least a liberal minority unless some sort of bomb goes off. Uh, obviously, that bomb has gone off perhaps three times. If you're Gerald Butts, what do you, what's the plan? How do you keep moving forward? Do you just keep grocery listing the, the promises and just keep rolling it out? What do you, what do, you do moving forward? Well, I think you got to have your guy continue to show humility. Uh, he was the best emotive communicator of the lot, so he's got to do that. you got to focus on those young people. If what I said earlier is accurate, that that 12%, that cohort, you got to try and keep them in your camp. Uh, you're not going to wedge away conservatives. You might get some blue conservatives, but you want to get those young people out to vote, first of all, and you want them to vote for you. Uh, so you've got to find things to do that. Uh, so we'll probably hear more things around affordability. You have to make a strategic decision. Do you continue to f- try and point out the flaws with conservative candidates and others? Or if you do that, does that blow up in your face? Uh, they may wait. I mean, they threw something else out about cheer and uh, liking gun owners and close affiliation with that the day after uh, the blackface stuff was at its peak. So they haven't entirely abandoned that. You've got to make choices like that. And then you got to get into the, all right, you know, he was in Hamilton last night, the prime minister was, as I uh, saw on Twitter. Hope you got to interview him, Scott. But, you know, you got to get into these ridings where they're close and find the progressive issues that you can showcase um, your guy over the others on. Because the interesting thing in our data no big gains yet for the NDP or Mr. Singh. So does that change over time? If that stays like it is, Trudeau's argument that Gerald will want to mount is, you know, we're the one hope against the the blue horde. And does, watch them to continue to try to push that. Again, over and above the racist elements of this in his apology and whether you believe it or you don't believe it or you buy in or you don't, does Justin Trudeau 
have the credibility to sell the rest of his platform, whether it's pharmacare, whether it's climate change. Uh, does anybody going to buy into what he says, considering he didn't know this was wrong? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, on the surface, thinking people would say no, he doesn't have the credibility. And what's it going to do to him on the world stage? How can he be lecturing others, particularly people like Donald Trump, right? Um, but elections can be emotional things. So, again, it may get down to, ah, well, maybe he's not as credible as he once was. And maybe we know there's a lot of sizzle there on certain things. We'd like some more substance, but we're more concerned about the other guy. Uh, but in a normal, if this was 2015 and it was Stephen Harper, Tom Mulcair, and Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's political career would be over. But this isn't 2015. Yeah. And Justin, Justin Trudeau, as I said to you, is running against leaders who uh, haven't really established themselves on the main party side. And Elizabeth May is not viewed as an alternative to government. In, in 2015, there were three opportunities, three people you could pick for government. And this one, there's two. And, and, and the determination, if you're a progressive, okay, if I want to hold Sheer to account, then maybe I go to sing. So... You know, the lineup works for Trudeau, but it wouldn't have a while ago, four years ago. So what does opposition do to, do they take advantage of this or do they stand back and, and let the prime minister handle this? Yeah, I think you have to stand back and, and you know, uh, the old Von Clausewitz thing, the Napoleon thing, don't interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake. Uh, I think that they have to be very careful because they don't want to do what got Justin Trudeau in trouble, which is start to preach about how they would have a higher uh, threshold and we, you know, the moral templars of our society. Uh, I, I think Sheer and Singh need to seize the opportunity that's going to come in about two weeks when the debates to, you know, to use those platforms. Um, Boy, and, how's this going to change the debates, Tim? Yeah, well, Trudeau, if he was already going to be the uh, the focus of the attacks, is now going to be challenged on his credibility. You know, I think you're going to hear a lot of who's the real Justin Trudeau uh, coming from uh, Singh and uh, yeah. and uh, Sheer. I suspect that's how it will work. But Singh and Sheer need to find a way to make people comfortable, and they need to use the, the lead into the debates and the debates to do that. Uh, at this point, um, if the others attack him anymore on what he has done, does it diminish their credibility? It may, uh, because I do think there are Canadians, I mean, Shear said it the day before, right? Before all this started because of the challenges some of his candidates were having with past statements that he was saying, you know, we should give people the opportunity to, to be forgiven or to explain themselves. I actually think that's a real Canadian sentiment. Uh, Trudeau yeah. is lucky it is a Canadian sentiment. Um, so they have to be careful, right? Doing that. And you never know what's going to pop up. Uh, if, if some other candidate or some senior figure in your own party has done something stupid and uh, you come out and again lecture uh, the others about uh, how what a wonderful uh, individual you are with no blemishes in your uh, personal or past history then uh, good luck to you that should be the lesson from all of this the other thing to learn too is uh, Trudeau is this isn't your typical campaign as I said Trudeau sort of exists in a different plane. He's almost judged through TMZ or People Magazine-like standards, meaning, uh, like many celebrities, uh, a flame-out is not a bad thing It's because uh, people like redemption. So I think Sheer and Singer demonstrating they realize that to a degree, uh, where they're more uh, aligned mm. with uh, being scored by the traditional system. Uh, what about the mood inside the campaign, the mood inside the Prime Minister's office at this point? Yeah, they're skittish. I mean, you know, they're they're smart people over there, whether you like what they stand for or not. They know. And you that. have to think that they are disappointed in this. They, yeah, they don't want to have yeah. to fight this battle. Well, I mean, a lot of them have publicly said, I mean, a lot of his MPs have publicly said that. I mean, um, Trudeau's failure by his own admission to reveal this, you know, these this history of blackface and his desire to appear that way often, or at least three times. Um, he says he was embarrassed about it, his team not knowing about it. Yeah, that causes problems. And I guess they feel a bit misled because a lot of these people have put their lives on the line for this guy. You certainly see no bleed off from, from liberals. Um, they've all kind of circled around him because he's still... 
is the person they need to circle around if they want to win. But, you know, they're, they're not as, as sure as they were a week or 10 days ago about, uh, about uh, where they stand and how this will break out for them. It's, it's just icky, this whole frigging thing from the pictures. Yeah, it the, is. It's every, icky. You know, it's icky. The, it the, the election yeah. itself has been icky so yeah. far. No, that's a great word to describe it. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies with Abacus Research, uh, has served as an advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott, and we're never icky, you and I. <laughs> oh, no. Well, we try not to be anyway. Not in public. Right, take care. Thank Bye. you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about science because there's a lot of chatter about science, especially in regard to climate change and, and you know, all the uh, information that's been floating around now that the campaign has started, the election campaign has started. Uh, lots of chatter in and around the science of climate change and such. But a new poll is suggesting that trust in science is falling amongst Canadians. This is scary because I've often thought that, you know, science kind of trumps everything. As far as your personal belief, religious beliefs, what have you. I mean, science is science based on data. You do experiments, it's either this way or that way. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not opinion. It's, there's theory. But once something's proven, it's pretty much proven. Uh, a survey suggests that the trust that Canadians place in science is eroded. Which, which seems odd. Because we should be getting smarter. Should we not? A survey by Ipsos, uh, this is for uh, the 3M company, multinational uh, company, found that nearly half of those surveyed thought scientists are elitist and that a significant number of respondents uh, discounted findings that don't accord with their personal beliefs. And this is Richard Chartran of 3M. He says, while science skeptics represented the minority of Canadians, the number is increasing. This trend is is concerning. Goes on to say there are certainly misconceptions. You can't blame people. It's just a jungle of misinformation out there. To talk more about all of this and how we can hopefully change this trend, uh, let's bring in Murdad Harari, CEO and President, Canadian Science Policy Conference, a nonprofit and advocacy group, and on the line with us now. Uh, Murdad, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Just one correction that we are not an advocacy group. We are just a convener. (laughs) Explain to us what the Canadian Science Policy Conference is. So it's Canadian Science Policy Centre, in fact, that we have an annual conference on bringing together various stakeholders of science and innovation enterprises in Canada from across country, across disciplines and across sectors to discuss uh, the emerging and important issues of science and innovation when it comes to policy and society. So we are the contact point and point of reference for government, for uh, for private sector, for academia, and for nonprofit uh, organizations who uh, operate in the area of science and innovation to discuss the policy issues. Uh, your thoughts on this survey, uh, what does this survey tell you? Well, uh, it concerns me that uh, we have seen uh, this trend uh, over the course of past few years uh, that the public is becoming more dissent to uh, the scientific community and scientific findings and seeing these findings with more skeptical lenses. And that's not a good sign. And I think scientific community uh, as a whole should take responsibility and act better in terms of connecting with the public as well as other organizations in civil civil society in order to uh, promote science and not just that, to position science in a way that science is not an opinion, is not public belief. It's a process that tries to understand the nature and the world around us. And its findings are not just personal opinion and it's not impacted by government or other organizations. 
You know, uh, in my introduction, I said that. I mean, I remember as a kid, I mean, science was science. It didn't matter what your personal belief was, uh, religion, what have you. Uh, th- this was data that is presented, and either it's this or or it's that. Why Why is this happening? Why Is this just science failing to sell itself? Uh, I, I, first of all, I do not have the uh, full-fledged answer for you that what, why this is happening. But one thing that I say that the number of factors that contribute to this is, in fact, that there are many voices around us on a daily basis. If before was just a university and that university was a stature in our life and everybody used to respect that, nowadays things have changed. There are number, uh, many more organizations uh, from all sectors, even from the religious organizations, civil society, governmental, and more importantly, the expansion of social media. So there are thousands of contributors to our daily life, and we, have, we hear from many of them. If you open your Twitter account, you see messages yeah. from thousands of, and of individuals from across uh, layers of society. So it's not just one voice. Therefore, you are exposed to so many opinions, and I think by default uh, takes the university or science voice as one of the others. And I think we have lost, and scientific community again should take responsibility for that, uh, lost that distinction that science is not an opinion as the others. Uh, I've often had this discussion with people around religion, and I certainly don't want to go there in in this discussion, but obviously technology has played a huge part in this. Uh, Do we think because we have access to certain information that we can find these answers out ourselves? Uh, I think part of it, yes. As I said, the expansion of social media, which provides numerous and much more information uh, uh, more accessible than before, that could be one contributor factor to this. So how, as, as a society, how do we tell the difference between real science and those commercial uh, entities that are using bits and pieces of science to sell their agenda? Yeah, it's very difficult to be quite honest because they also have, you know, uh, the tools and uh, and and to to uh, to get uh, the, their point and their message to the public. I think uh, we have to. The public should uh, be more aware about the about the uh, science and the process of science and and the findings of science. One of the things that scientific community, due to complexity, of course, and due to the nature of science has not been so successful in conveying the scientific findings to the public through various uh, uh, media or, or, or means of communications that they have. As I said, part of it is just because of the complexity of science and scientific process. And, but however, it is a must to do for scientific community to be able to get their message across the public. It is uh, in fact, it's, it's becoming a long overdue. I must say that the scientific community, they have not sat under ivory tower like before and just do nothing. That's not the case. We have to give them the credit that they have tried. Uh, also, they have tried through, you know, in, engaging with the public through various other affiliated organizations with scientific community, through various media and various means, various social media. However, it seems that this is not enough. And we have to do more. Uh, so, uh, so now we're expecting the role of scientists not to just figure all of this out, but now be able to explain it to us in layman terms before industry gets a hold of it and tries to distort the facts in their favor. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's part of it. So science, science enterprises, like others, they have to have their mechanisms to be able to communicate to public in the right way and in an effective way. Therefore, it's not necessarily that the, the responsibility of one per scientist per se, it is the responsibility of the community to have means and, and, and tools of communication with the public in a way that is understandable for everyone. That means that science communicators have become very important in this time and age. 
I would agree with that because at the end of the day, when people are bombarded with all of this information, which scientists do they believe? Uh, and you can look to things like the opioid crisis, where scientists, science may say this, and then other people will say science says that. You can look to climate change, where you get people distorting facts uh, one way or the other. Uh, and, and again, I'm not denying any of that. So h- how, how is the public to know which science or what scientists to believe? Right. I think part of it also is the role and responsibility of media, like uh, you know yourself uh, in this case, to Uh, some due diligence and due research beforehand. For example, the ways that, uh, in terms of climate change, for example, in scientific community, the climate change science, the scientists, uh, expert in climate uh, and environmental science, uh, who believe uh, the climate change is not happening or is not man-made, you can count less than, you know, uh, number of uh, fingers, right? So the absolute majority, 99% of scientists, uh, they think and they believe that uh, climate change is happening and it's, uh, it's man-made, right? It's a result of the human uh, being activities. So my point is do not give the equal weight to those uh, climate change deniers who they have right of, of obviously to express their opinion. There is no question about that. But my point is that it's, we have to have uh, a kind of a fair uh, discussion and give the appropriate weight to the true science. And part of it, I guess, is the media responsibility. Uh, so are we going to see changes in how uh, science presents this to the public? I think the scientific community is trying. I believe that they have to do more. And, and, and given the change in our society, as I said, the expansion of social media and many other things, and uh, I think they have to try to get ahead of curve. And, and, and part of it is their relationship with media, such as yourself. That's also part of the things that they have to uh, bear in mind. Murdad Hariri has been with us, CEO and President of the Canadian Science Policy Conference. Uh, Murdad, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. All right, let's bring in Dr. Don Bowdish, uh, an, Ameri- uh, an Associate Professor at McMaster University, Canadian Research Chair in Aging and, Immu- uh, and Immunity, and is on the line with us now. Don, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. Don, what are your thoughts on this survey that, that uh, society is starting to question science and scientists and, and, and positioning them as elite and such? Uh, obviously, you must find this disturbing. Why do you think it's happening? Well, it's very disturbing and upsetting for all of us. Most of us who became scientists came because we, we want to help contribute to the greater good. We want to make the world a better place. And the term, you know, the belief that it's an elitist field is particularly upsetting because science has always been a field that's attracted people from all, all walks of life, all economic backgrounds. But I think the challenge is, as we get more and more trained in our particular field, we become less and less able to relate and, and to talk about the big picture. We're so taught to be precise and accurate that we lose our ability to remember what's jargon and not jargon and to communicate that fairly. I think one of the other challenges is that it's hard to do many things well. It's hard to be an excellent scientist and also an excellent communicator. And we used to rely on specialized science reporters or science writers who would convey a lot of that work for us through the media. But as media changes, we have fewer of these people who are specialized. And so now we're relying on the scientists themselves to do a lot of that communication. Uh, has Talk about technology and, as uh, the previous guest said, just a jungle of, of technology and information coming at people. Do we now assume we can do this ourselves? Absolutely. Who hasn't turned to Dr. Wikipedia yeah. or Dr. Google to try to self-diagnose? Because there's a lot of information out there, we all think that we are smart enough to be able to weed uh, we uh, weave our way through all that complicated information. But the challenge is it's not all equal. And just because it shows up on the first page of Google doesn't mean it's the best data. And understanding what kind of clinical trial is more reliable or understanding what sort of biases might be in a specific study is really challenging for people who don't have all that training and expertise. It takes those of us who are in science decades to become experts in our fields, and it's challenging for even scientists to, to understand a different field, let alone the lay public. 
So in a world where we have access to pretty much everything, how, do, how, how, does, this, how does society know what science to believe, which scientists to believe? As you often see, especially in politics where there's an agenda or industry where there's an agenda, that they can find science that backs them up. So it seems that we're debating science when, in fact, science should be, at the end of the day, mm-hmm. the final proof, shouldn't it? It should be. I think I have some hope that a lot of our public education system is doing a really good job of teaching media literacy. So looking at what the source is. So for example, does that source come from a national funding body where it's probably a fairly impartial? Um, do, do the scientists declare any conflicts of interest they might have to see if they're, they're being funded from, say, an industrial source? Uh, those are helpful. Understanding that in science, repetition is good. So one finding, we all approach with hesitation until it's been reproduced across the world. Big studies are more reliable than small studies. But these, again, are all things that are really challenging for people to understand. Um, and science really is based on repetition. So we only become confident when people can do the same thing over and over again. But unfortunately, repetition is not particularly exciting, so it's not reported on very much. So I have to have faith that we are going to teach the next generation to be a lot more literate about the media and about the sources where they get their information and to try to teach people that there are impartial sources. Um, So, for example, public health agencies are a great uh, resource because they are impartial in looking at the data. I remember having a discussion with friends in regard to the creation of Earth and mankind and how it all started and how we all got here and you know what those conversations can (laughs) be like. And I remember somebody who had a a, a very religious point of view saying, well, that's just a worldview. And I remember thinking... Well, no, science Mm -hmm. isn't a worldview. Science Mm -hmm. is something different based in fact. Mm -hmm. Am I I close there? Yes. Well, I mean, there's a famous uh, quote from Einstein about... um, uh, and I'll get it exactly. I'll get it wrong, but about how now we now value someone's opinion as much as as someone else's fact. How has that happened? Well, I think I think to a certain degree. We all have what's called confirmation bias. We tend to believe things that confirm what we already believe. And we tend to ignore things that challenge us. And that's a really hard bias to get over. So I think one of the things that's challenging is when you're presented with information that that is not consistent with what you believe. If I say vaccines are good and you believe them to be bad, you're more yeah. likely to discount my view. There's uh, a great example. There's a great mm-hmm. example how this happens. Vaccination. Mm-hmm. I always also said the opioid crisis or the cl- right. or climate change. You're yes. seeing you're seeing you're hearing both sides of this. That's issue. right. And as someone who speaks a lot about vaccination, I can tell you that it's really, really hard for people to um, accept any challenge to their beliefs. But I think the way we need to do this is we have to communicate not so much with just uh, numbers and try to wow people with facts, but really listen to what their concerns are and then address those specific concerns. Because everyone's trying to make the right decision. Everyone's trying to make the best decision. And we just all have a different pool of facts that we can draw from. And as scientists, it's, we have to be humble and we have to listen before we speak. So is it too much information? Is that how we got here? I think to a certain point. I mean, I think uh, with the democratization of all yeah. that information. At one time, we only would get this information from sitting in a class with you. Now everybody exactly, is getting this. That's exactly right. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I do believe no. that knowledge is power. So I think the question is, how do we teach people how to pick what is a good source versus a bad source? And again, I think, you know, relying on, on impartial um, Uh, public health agencies, for example, if you're looking for health information, um, and understanding who funds what. So as an example, I I do research on vaccination. And uh, someone once said to me, are you in the pockets of big pharma? And I'm a university professor, so I'm actually in the pockets of big taxpayer. And as a, as a consequence, you know, I, I... But you can understand how people said that absolutely. to you, especially thinking, well, we put all our trust in big pharma, and look where it's gotten us with the absolutely. opioid crisis. Absolutely. Absolutely. So understanding where the funding stream, where you get your money from, is actually very, very important because it helps color people's perceptions about whether you're impartial or not. 
And so being upfront about that, about how the work is paid for, um, I think it's really, really key to helping build some of that trust. So how do you turn this around? Because it seems like we're heading for a train wreck here. It seems like this is only growing. I worry. I do worry. But I would say that institutions like McMaster, where I'm at, are starting to really think about training people, not just on how they do the science, but how they communicate their science. And so I'm hopeful that the next generation of young scientists will be incredibly media savvy. Mm. And because there's this democratization, uh, they can use social media and they can use other um, Facebook, whatever they're on, to sort of communicate their science. And I think that will help break down the belief that scientists are elitists because you'll know that your neighbor, your, you know, your cousin, your friends are scientists. Mm. And, uh, and I, I have faith that as we train the next generation of, of students to learn how to be critical of the media and scientists of how to use and work with the media, I think we'll be in a better place. Dr. Don Bowdish has been with us, an associate professor at McMaster University and a Canada Research Chair in Aging and and Immunity. Don, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There certainly is similarities. Or is it a stretch? Uh, It seems that... um, it seems that the song this is never going to end. This has been in the courts, I, I guess, for five years now. Uh, the estate of uh, Randy Wolf, who was with the 60s psychedelic band Spirit, uh, whether this song, in, in fact, plagiarized uh, the Spirit song Taurus in order to create Stairway to Heaven. Let's bring in David Bright, professor for Niagara's History of Rock and Roll class, and with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon, Scott. What are your thoughts? Are these the same song or not? Ah, uh, it's deja vu, isn't it? We've been through this so many times. I know, I know. <laughs> and then, you know, we always uh, wonder why Zeppelin won't reform and tour again, and it's like, because if they make <laughs> any more money, it's just going to attract more lawsuits. Uh, I was reading today that even Robert Plant doesn't like to sing this song anymore. Um, yeah, they're similar. Uh, you know, it goes down the scale, like you say. Um, me, I was humming Dear Prudence by the Beatles to it, you know. So you could yeah. That, you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think they were there ahead of Taurus, even, uh, Spirit, rather. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, there's, there's a similarity. And uh, I guess if Jimmy Page had once ever said, you know, just just come out and said, yeah, you know, I, I, I adopted the the riff, but I changed it as well. Um but they never said that, and, and so it's been left to, uh, well, not a panel of judges, but another panel of judges to ponder you know, whether or not it's too close. So uh, what will they do? Literally measure notes, and if it's over a threshold, then it's plagiarism? How do you do well, this? This, this? There is no guideline for this. Um, you know, you have your, your standard eight notes in an octave with yeah. you know, the sharps, the, the flats in there, and semitones, and, you know, blue notes and whatever. Um <sighs> And how many how many songs can you you know? Is it a question for family fortune or something? How many how many songs can you get out of eight notes? Right, which don't sound the same. Um, how I chatted once with your colleague Bill Kelly, and I always said intent was more important than happenstance. I mean, mm. anybody can just happen to write a song, and years later realize, holy cow, you know, subconsciously I did steal that from someone else. But I think it's when you've gone out of your way to deliberately um, take someone else's tune and not acknowledge, you know, in the the academic world we call that plagiarism. Um, So what do you think we have here? Just a band that grew up in an era when this was the sound and lots of people, I mean, you could say the same thing of the grunge era, of whatever, there's lots of repetitiveness in pop music. Well, um, the big strike against Led Zeppelin is that they stole so much from so many people that, you know, they... They've been caught red-handed stealing. Well, you know, it was interesting. I remember when they were on, um, uh, when they had the Kennedy Honors, and they do the big presentation in Washington every year, and Led Zeppelin was there the same year that David Letterman was, and then the next day, Letterman had them on the show. And this was when the rumors were floating around that they were going to get back together and the whole Oz show and stuff. And and Letterman was praising them and saying how inventive they were in mu- with music and whatever. And Jimmy Page said, no, we just took black rhythm and blues music and cranked it up really loud and sold it back yeah. to Americans. And that's exactly, really yeah. what they did do here, isn't it? Well, 
even more so in those earlier cases when, you know, Dazed and Confused is based on a song called Dazed and Confused by someone else. Yeah. It's the same riff. Um, a whole bunch of stuff they took from the likes of Willie Dixon and others and yeah. didn't even change the lyrics. Um, so this, you know, to be fair to Led Zeppelin, they've actually um, grown up a stage here because the song does deviate after the first sort of minute and a half. Um, I, I would say if you take away that... Um, the descending sort of scale at the beginning, then right. you you would not obviously make the comparison. Um, but as that's the first thing you hear in both songs, I think you know it's obvious that your ears say, "Wait a minute, um, it is pretty similar." But like I say, I can think of "Dear Prudence." I can think mm. of as uh, a couple of ELO songs which also go the yeah. scale. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you have to go up the scale or down the scale sometimes, and it's you know. Does this discredit? Does this discredit the band? Led Zeppelin? Yeah. No, I mean anybody who knows them knows what they did. Um, you know the other songs, and this this rumor has been around for more than five years. Um, uh, it's interesting that the uh, original composer Randy Wolf he didn't like the fact that he he did think that Led Zeppelin had sort of copped his riff, but he had no interest in taking it to court, and it's only since he's died that the, the lawyers and whoever stands to gain from the estate have come in, and so I think one thing to um, maybe focus on, it's less this purist, oh, they, they stole my song kind of thing, rather than how much many millions over the 45 years yeah. can we recoup now? So do you um, think, so is like just a check coming here? Is that what this is all about? I mean, haven't we been all over this many times already? Um, well, they've been, the, uh, the estate has been fighting this for five years, which is five years of paying lawyers, so it's going to have to be a mighty big check when it does come in. Um, you know, I, I think what other bands have done in the past, and if you go back to um, the early 60s, Beach Boys, when they did um, Surf in USA. Chuck it was Berry, yeah. Solid from Chuck Berry, mm. and so... They just agreed to put Barry on the uh, songwriting, uh, the, the composer um, list, and so he got half the royalties mm -hmm. for writing the song. Um, Rolling Stones did that when, uh, I forget which song it was of theirs, but it was a K.D. Lang song, uh, Constant Craving, and so they gave her a co-credit as well. Um, but I suspect even if page and plant were to offer that now i mean the estate would simply say well wait a minute it's what about past years, years yeah. Late. yeah yeah so. and i mean very common with this uh it just happened recently with robin thick's uh blurred lines yeah so um, are these cases becoming easier to prove with time and technology oh yeah for sure i mean now all you have to do is you know take a song and you know if you have the right program or right app you can just plug it in and any number of songs which are similar will will pop up mm -hmm. and then you I think you you pick the biggest one and go and sue them um i think i think it's also a reflection in that uh the music industry isn't making the kind of money off selling its music that it used to i mean because it's simply the downloads in our free and so this is an alternative way of making money off sort of back catalogs um i mean the the, the blurred line thing with the uh, thick i mean it, I think everybody agreed. It wasn't so much the um, the melody; it was just the atmosphere and the ambient, the groove of the song. Of yeah, songs. yeah, the groove. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, which is really hard because, again, a, a groove is such a yeah. amorphous, subjective. It's like thing. a feeling. Um, yeah, yeah. And then you're asking old white judges to, you know, yeah. compare two grooves. So every time that a Zeppelin box set or anything else gets re-released or whatever the new, maybe those are all gone now because everything's streamed, um, but any time they release any sort of project that's going to generate money from their old catalog, this is going to come up, isn't it? Well, um, I'm, I haven't quite followed the uh, legal case as to what stage is at. I mean, I know that uh, three years ago Zeppelin won um, the, the previous case, I think this is now going to appeal, uh, whether there's still yet another higher court. <laughs> I mean, this could go on for another decade, maybe, um, until everyone's dead. But um, So say this, let me ask you this, so say this yeah. gets thrown out again, and that's it, um, you know, Zeppelin has paid any restitution that they have needed to pay, they've squared off with everybody, uh, so the rest of you just relax, It's it, they've paid their due, so to speak. 
do you see the band then somehow coming together thing we got the legal woes behind us now we can go out and perform this without worrying about being sued or do you think that's it it's just the whole train is has left the station for them um they well plan must be now 75 or something yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I don't um, like i said before he, he's gone on record that's when he does his solo um uh, solo tours this is one song he tries to avoid he's got he says, you know, I wrote it when I was, no, he didn't write it. He wrote the lyrics when he was 23. It's got nothing to do with him now. Um, you know, and he must have played it so many hundreds of times. Yeah. I'm kind of sick of it. Um, but, I, but I think if this is going to be a sign of things to come, then the rules of the game have to be set out most clearly, I think, now. And that um, if, if you're going to sue somebody or make an, make an accusation and then you lose further down the road, then there has to be some kind of penalty. Otherwise, you know, the, the artist with the most amount of money can go after the most amount of people and just play the game and hope that some of those cases are won. And uh, What do new, newer, younger musicians learn from this? Because obviously with technology and the electronic age, a lot more sampling, isn't this even more of an issue now? Yeah. Um, well... <laughs> I think new new bands do this all the time, um, and, and I think that's fair game because they're learning the craft and you know they're, they're trying to work out their own sound and they're putting their sound is you know built from the various bits and pieces they like. Mm-hmm. And I'd hate to see a a young band or a young artist who's only starting out and has no money to be sued to be taken to court. Um, but you can see that if especially say through you know YouTube or some other online platform that if somebody comes out of nowhere and suddenly has four and a half million likes and is generating all this ad revenue then I think they will be um, targetable by you know this lawyer or that lawyer and it may not even be um, other artists you know protecting their own songs it could well just be you know people yeah, looking to profit. In the basements and do this full-time and try and compare songs, and then they phone a lawyer and, mm. you know, on behalf of the estate, on behalf of the artist, we will launch a case for you. So how do you think this one's going to end? Do you think they're going to have to write another check? <laughs> um, I, I think they get off on this one. I, I, I think that's the... I think Led Zeppelin would have... <laughs> this was the wrong song. I think if somebody wanted to go after them... Yeah, there's before, there's lots there. Much, much yeah, uh, I I think the the judges are going to say it's close, but there's enough elements of difference that these are two different songs. And um, you'd think also at some point there has to be some kind of statute of limitations. Yeah, really. You know? How long can we do this? Yeah. Uh, David Bright is with us, professor for Niagara College's history of rock and roll class. David, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Thanks so much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.